Welcome to Elevate L&D, conversations with Cincinnati's learning and development leaders, brought to you by the Greater Cincinnati Association for Talent Development. In this episode, we'll discuss designing e-learning for learners of all abilities and the laws that govern accessibility. We'll also explore different types of assistive technology, the tools used for accessible course development, and how to build accessibility awareness within L&D teams. Our host, Katie Schweder, talks with Robin Deschar, instructional designer at TQL, and Adrian Zonker, e-learning developer at Tier 1 Performance. They will provide insight from the learning design and development sides on how to create online training for all learners. Let's join the conversation. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Katie Schweder, freelance learning designer and producer for Elevate L&D. Let's take a moment to imagine this scene. Our learner, Terry, is sitting at her computer. She logs on to the company LMS and selects the e-learning course she needs to take. She listens to the audio, reads text, and sees images on her screen. She must then pass a quiz with questions about the images and text she saw and the narration she heard. Terry uses her mouse to click on, drag and drop, and submit her answers. What I just described is a pretty standard e-learning experience, but are these activities accessible for all learners? What if Terry has hearing loss or is visually impaired? Will Terry be able to complete this required course? These are just a couple of examples of how disabilities can impact the learning experience. A Center for Talent Innovation study found that 30% of working professionals in the U.S. have a disability. The study also reveals that 62% of employees with disabilities have invisible disabilities, those that someone cannot immediately identify upon meeting a person. Accessibility is an expansive topic with a long history of creating equal opportunities for everyone, regardless of ability. As technology evolves and we focus on providing accessible online services, how can instructional designers and e-learning developers ensure they integrate accessibility standards into every course? With me today are two guests with unique perspectives on the topic. I'd like to introduce Robin Deschar, instructional designer at TQL, and Adrian Zonker, e-learning developer at Tier 1 Performance Solutions. Robin and Adrian, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Katie. Thank you. Hi. Thanks for inviting me to this discussion. Great to have you both. Robin, let's start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah. So like you mentioned, I work for Total Quality Logistics, better known as TQL here in Cincinnati. We are a third-party logistics company, and I'm an instructional designer. This is my first instructional design role that I've been in. Uh, My background is mostly in teaching special education in public school and also in the nonprofit world for people with disabilities. For me, designing course content for high school students and young adults took a whole new turn in 2020 with the pandemic. So I had to figure out ways to guide their learning 100% virtually. So that's how I ended up becoming interested in this field and ultimately focused on becoming an instructional designer. That's great. Thanks, Robin. And Adrian, can you tell us a little bit about you and your background? Yes. Hello. I am an e-learning developer at Tier 1 Performance. My role primarily entails building e-learning courses using rapid authoring tools. I live in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I work at the Tier 1 Covington Cincinnati office. I've been at Tier 1 eight and a half years, 
but I have a total of 13 years experience as an e-learning developer. I graduated with a BFA in graphic design and fine arts. My first job out of college was at Trivanus, the company that created the rapid authoring tool Lectora, and they hired me as both graphic designer and e-learning developer, which became my gateway into the world of e-learning and, by extension, accessibility. That's great, Adrian. Thank you. And thank you both again for sharing your expertise on the show today. Uh, let's start where instructional designers like to start, with a focus on learners. Robin, with your expertise in special education, can you tell us more about the individuals you have taught and the types of disabilities that need to be considered in course design? Sure. So I've worked with many different people within a really wide range of ages and disabilities and abilities. First, I want to touch on the very basics of disability for those who aren't as familiar with it. And there are mainly two types of disability that can occur in people. There's the mental and physical. That's a very general way to break it up. Then that can be broken down into a lot of different subcategories. So the disability is often classified because it impacts that person's ability to do something, but mostly because of the way the world is designed, not because of their disabilities. Sometimes people have a combination of different types of disabilities, so it's not always just one thing. And even if two people have the same disability, it can impact them very differently. So it's important to remember that no one's experience with it is exactly the same. And also there's some disabilities that are invisible or hard to see. And so you don't always necessarily know if somebody has a disability. Another thing to think of, though, is that some learning challenges can be temporary or situational. We are all going to be dealing with disability at some point in our lives. If we're lucky enough to live to old age, we will probably experience some type of disability related to aging. Sometimes you get injured. Sometimes you may have a surgery that impacts your functioning for a limited amount of time. So there's like situational disability. There might be a situation where barriers make learning difficult, such as being in a noisy environment. It might not be a disability, but you benefit from the accessibility tools that we're using. So these are all things that we want to consider when we're designing for different disabilities. Robin, I have to admit I've never considered that fact that disability will impact all of us at some point in our lives. What an insight. So can you tell us a little bit about inclusive design? Yeah. So when I say inclusive design, I'm referring to more a theory or a process that allows you to create without barriers for your learners. And when I refer to accessibility, that's more of an attribute or like a feature of something. Whereas inclusive design is a way of thinking and approaching your process of creating with everybody in mind who might be taking your course or might be using your product. So when we talk about inclusive design, a great example that I like to think about is curb cuts. These are the lowered parts of the curb where it allows you access to the sidewalk or street without stepping or lifting things up and down. And those help you when you're in a wheelchair, when you're pushing a stroller, or if you can't do steps for some reason. But think about maybe somebody with low vision or no vision who uses curbs to determine where the street ends. Then that curb cut being put in place, suddenly that's going to jeopardize that person's safety. So that's where you see those little raised bumps come in, those little red bumps that are on the curb cut. So that might help people who are feeling their way through as opposed to visually seeing it when they're crossing the street. And then we also have the chirping signals to tell hearing people when it's safe to cross or the visual signals of the walking person or like the orange red hand that tells us when to stop and wait. So all of these things come together when we're talking about not just curb cuts, but just crossing the street in general. All those things come together to help everyone cross the street safely without barriers. 
And so that's kind of like the thing that I think back to when it comes to inclusive design. We are designing for all of our learners. A design can benefit a lot of different people in different ways and accomplish the same goal. Thanks for that explanation, Robin. It sounds like there's a lot to consider when it comes to inclusive design, whether it's in the physical world or the online world. Adrian, as Robin mentioned, there is a wide variety of learners out there who want and need to access learning content. Can you give us some insight into laws or guidelines that govern accessibility and make sure that web content and online learning is available to everyone? Yes, I can. I'm going to cover sort of three definitions, if you will. First, I want to start with Section 508. It's probably the term most people hear when it comes to accessibility. It's kind of used as the umbrella term, but it's actually a federal law and part of the Rehabilitation Act. It applies to federal agencies and departments. The law mandates that federal agencies acquire, develop, maintain, and use information and communications technology, or ICT, that can be accessed by people with disabilities not just for federal employees, but for anyone accessing federal government resources. So does that mean compliance only applies to federal government organizations? No. It applies to every organization or company that hires people or interacts with people in any way. All need to consider those individuals with a disability. There is a second law that addresses everybody else, and that's ADA or the Americans with Disabilities Act. ADA is a civil rights law that prohibits discrimination against any person based on their disability. It applies to state and local governments, businesses, and nonprofits. It covers digital accessibility, but also accessibility in other areas of operation. Um, Robin touched on this, but like using the bathroom, accessing buildings, televisions, signs on doors, using elevators, on and on it goes. Both of these laws exist to ensure alternative means of access. But since we're here to also talk about e-learning and sort of the digital realm, what does that mean for online content? How does one ensure their e-learning is compliant with these laws? And that is where WCAG, or Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, comes in handy. And it is WCAG and not WCAG. Correct. (laughs) Yes. If you want a comprehensive set of guidelines and a nice, convenient checklist to help achieve compliance, then WCAG is the gold standard of online accessibility. These guidelines were created by the World Wide Web Consortium, or W3C. They were intended to give website owners and companies actionable guidelines for creating digital accessibility. There are three tiers of conformance. There's level A, which is minimum accessibility, double A, that addresses the major, most common accessibility issues, and then triple A, the highest standard. Double A is typically the level most companies aim for to meet compliance. It's free to download and, in my opinion, the best way to set a web designer or e-learning developer on the path to accessibility. Thanks for that explanation, Adrian. I think a lot of us have heard of these laws before, but you've really helped clarify how they work together to ensure content is accessible. So this next question, I want to open up to both of you, but I'm going to start with Robin. Could you give us some insight into the kinds of tools or methods that help those with disabilities access online content? 
Yeah. So some people have assistive technology or programs that they use at work in order to make their jobs more accessible. Like someone with a visual impairment might use a screen reader that reads text by converting it to audio or braille. They sometimes do spell checks, search for specific elements on a screen. They can do a lot. However, another person with a visual impairment might use contact lenses that allow them to read the screen without any other supports. So we need to design a course that can be completed for both of those people. It's not necessary really to, like I said before, to design a course to use with a specific brand or type of screen reader. There are tons of them out there. They all pretty much function the same way. If you're already following those uh, web accessibility guidelines. So just a quick question here. Adrian, you mentioned before the show that you're familiar with JAWS. Can you tell us about that? JAWS is a screen reader. That's one that we use most often in our testing, our accessibility testing. It's an audio program that speaks the screen to the user. Anything that's tagged for accessibility, so in an e-learning course, it will take that information, those tags, and then the screen reader will read them to the user. And then there's like a free version called NVDA, which you can download for free, but I just had experience using that one, and it's not as solid an experience as using JAWS, but it definitely helps convey all of that text information, all that visual information on screen to a person who with low vision. So not just people that are completely blind, but also people with partial vision. So the user presses a key and then that key kind of tabs through the content and... So it will auto read. So if like you're on a browser, it may just start reading off the URL. But yes, eventually you do have to use the keyboard to kind of navigate around. So the common ways, at least in e-learning courses, are using the tab key. The up and down arrow keys are really common. But there's lots of other shortcuts to help, you know, the user engage with the program and navigate around their computer screen. Magnifying programs, so screen magnifying programs like uh, ZoomText is one. Screen magnifiers help people with low vision to sort of see better by blowing up their screens really large. So that's another one. The screen magnifiers, too, another way that you can think about your design with those type of devices is when that person does magnify the screen, are there going to be a ton of elements that are off the screen, like the next button that they're going to need to hit to advance forward? So thinking about things like that is important when you're designing. Some other technology and tools that people might use on a computer for accessibility Someone with an auditory impairment may use captions. That's a really common one. So captions are something that we think of, or a transcript. Transcripts are very helpful for a lot of people who maybe have an auditory disability, but also people who may need to read the content for some other reason. Maybe they're on the train and they just need to scan through. So there are a lot of reasons why somebody might, but someone with a hearing disability would be able to access your course if you include the captions and the transcripts. We also talked a little bit about motor impairment. Can you touch on that? Yeah. So there are all kinds of devices out there. An alternative input device, like sometimes people may use a head pointer if they're unable to use their hands and maybe they can use their head to use a device to hit keys or a screen. If someone has fine motor difficulties or maybe they have something like a type of arthritis that makes it really difficult to do things like dragging and dropping or clicking a mouse... They're going to use the method that works best for them. So there's going to obviously be a spectrum of ability there. Uh, motor difficulties come into play when you're talking about operating technology. Even though most of the stuff that we're doing is on the screen, like we still have to think about whether people are using a mouse, a keyboard, are they using a touchscreen, all those things. 
as long as you're using the guidelines to design and then also taking advantage of all those accessibility controls and things that we already have access to through our programs, you should really be able to reach most of the people that are using those types of devices. So in that introductory story where I talked about our learner and how she wasn't able to click and drag and drop to perform her quiz, that would be an example of somebody with a motor impairment who could then not complete that quiz. Right. So what are some design adaptations that could be made to enable the learner to take that quiz? Yeah, so there's there's a few different ways. If you have an objective for a course that requires a non-accessible activity, like that quiz that you're talking about, you can kind of branch that learning path and provide an accessibility optimized alternative experience, like a personalized learning path or like a drop down menu activity. That would be an example. Okay. Stay away from drag and drops. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially. Anything in which the mouse is the primary tool to navigate the page yeah. is something I would recommend staying away from. There's other ways you can create engaging e-learning through clicking or tabbing or arrow keys, but Using the keyboard is definitely the primary way people with mobility issues are going to access your content. So any kind of interactivity has to be accessible via keyboard. Yeah, and I think for people who might not be using the mouse and they are using those tab functions to get through the course, you want to make sure that when they're receiving that content, it's in an order that makes sense and your headings are all labeled properly. It also comes into play like when someone's using a screen reader to get the information on the screen because the content will need to be set up in a way that makes sense. So we mentioned audio impairment, vision impairment, mobility, but we really didn't discuss cognitive, which I think is pretty important when you're talking about learning. I'm glad that you brought that up, Adrian, because, yeah, cognitive impairment is it's one of those invisible disabilities. Yeah, I feel like that one is probably the least talked about. I mean, people, yep, you got to have the closed captioning. You got to have the alt tags. There's going to be the screen reader testing. Yes. And then the keyboard, you know, people might not even be thinking of the mobility impairment folks, but they'll be thinking of the keyboard and the screen reader because usually they go hand in hand, especially for somebody who does use a screen reader. I feel like the cognitive folks kind of get left out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. People, yeah, people kind of assume still sometimes that people with cognitive disabilities can't work or don't work. And that's definitely not true. That's uh, my previous job. That's pretty much what we focused on. So Adrian, any development best practices for learners with cognitive impairments? The few things I do know, the few best practices I do know for those who might have learning disabilities is to one, chunk out the text. Make your page have clear hierarchy of headings and then body text, but they should be chunked out so that they're comprehensive and easy to read. That's one thing. The other thing was when it came to assessments, no timing, no time tests, no extra pressure on those learners that might take a little longer to process information. So those were probably the two biggest things was structuring the page in a way that had headers and paragraph texts and were chunked out information. And then also making sure that you aren't putting them under a, like a timer, having that extra added pressure. Those were kind of the two main things. Right. So if you do have someone with a cognitive impairment, one thing that we can do in our courses, if you're designing, a lot of times we're writing scripts. So using language that is not cliches, idioms, sayings as a general rule is a really good thing to remember. The use of language can alienate more users than you think due to those hidden disabilities that we were talking about that impact the way that people understand literal versus figurative language. So if we're using 
just saying what we mean and using like the factual terms and just staying away from those cliches and idioms, which I know there can be a lot of in different industries. That's usually like a rule I try to remember. Robin, to your earlier point about not alienating learners with the language we use in our courses, I just wanted to add, I read recently that nearly half of American adults don't read higher than an eighth grade level. So I think that's another really good reason to write content that's straightforward and easy to understand. Yeah. Using non-ableist language, too, is important. Yeah, inclusive language. Right. And staying informed about ways that language has changed and evolved when you're writing your content, because we all know that there is that evolution of language where we're like, oh, what can we say now? Or what should I say when I'm referring to this? You want to do the right thing, right? Most of us want to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. So it could be using a word like select instead of click, because maybe someone with a motor impairment is not clicking. Maybe they're doing something different. So boil it down to what is the action or what is the thing that you're trying to say? Or even just using gender neutral terms to describe a person. So we're just talking about all people. So yes, you have to think of your learner, but also as a broad general rule, trying to avoid ableist language and things like that. I feel like I have such a better understanding now of the learner perspective. Thanks, Robin and Adrian. I want to switch gears a bit to the development side. Adrian, we talked about the assistive technology that learners use to access content. What tools do you use to develop accessible courses? So the tool often depends on the client. In my role as an e-learning developer, we primarily use rapid authoring tools. Most commonly, we use Articulate Storyline. Less commonly, Articulate Rise. I've also used Lectora in the past, though less so recently, as more and more clients shift to Storyline. There is also Captivate, but I haven't personally used that tool for projects that require accessibility. But all of the rapid authoring tools I've mentioned, they have the capability to make accessible content. They are screen reader and keyboard compatible. But the logistics, you know, may vary depending on how you choose to build your accessibility. That might change. The compatibility with screen readers may vary, but the target demographics are still the same. In my experience, the tool that struggles the most in this area is Rise. Since that one is a newer tool than the others, it has some kinks to work out, particularly with its screen reader capabilities. There have been some recent accessibility updates to improve the tool's capabilities, but I haven't had a chance to test it yet to see if the biggest issues were resolved. Of course, there are other tools out there that I haven't mentioned, but these are the ones that I and other developers at Tier 1 use the most. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Storyline is such a great tool. So with so many devices to consider, what does the QA and testing process look like for your team, Adrian? Like, do you invite a learner in with a device and see if the course works or do you take the course yourself? How does that work? Yeah, there's a whole process. The learner is not typically involved. Uh, maybe the client is involved and our internal team. But yeah, for a typical project, we divide testing into three review periods. We have an alpha, a beta, and a final. If accessibility is involved, then that entails additional testing with a screen reader. As a developer, I test with keyboard and screen reader as I build, but an additional reviewer will also do screen reader and keyboard testing to double check that all content is read, how the content flows, pronunciation and speed, and that all interactive objects are navigable and functional via keyboard. So you test as you build and then you test the final course. Absolutely. That seems like a very sound process to ensure that your courses are working on their devices they were written for. 
Yeah. I mean, it's it's pretty thorough. We try to make sure that we catch everything along the way. And then, of course, you know, the client's also reviewing in tandem. So it's a, a lot of layers to get to that final product. So, Adrian, at Tier 1, a client hires you to create a course. Mm-hmm. Does that client specify that they have learners with disabilities or do you design every course to have accessibility functionality? Every client we approach, we should bring up uh, 508 compliance because we, we do work with the government and we also work with commercial businesses of all kinds. And like I said, ADA covers it all. It's all discrimination based. If your technology is not accessible, then you're likely to get sued. Is somebody who has that disability tries to access your technology and, and can't. But how you make something accessible is up to the client. It does not have to be e-learning. So one of the things that is on us as consultants is that we should present what's available and based on what the client needs are. Not every client is going to need a, an accessible course, even though they technically probably should all be that way. The client may have information that they know who their audience is, they know if it if it's required or not. So that's probably the number one thing is to make sure that we're asking. So yes, upfront, when we're talking about the project at its very beginnings, at, it, at its initial kickoffs, that's when we definitely want to bring up whether something needs to be accessible and what the options are. Because like I said, it doesn't always have to be e-learning. It could be, you know, a PDF document or a Word document presented to them. It could be instructor-led training. They could have like a whole program in place where they have like a one-on-one with an instructor, with somebody who has a vision impairment. So they might not need the extra level of the screen reader testing and the keyboard testing, which to be honest, is probably the most time-consuming part of development when we're talking about impact. And then closed captioning is pretty standard and pretty easy in most of the e-learning tools to include. So I feel like that one's an easy one that we cover just as a standard, I would say. That one probably gets gets the most love, if, if you will. <laughs> but to answer your question, yeah, it really is. It should be right up at the beginning where we ask. That's great. I admit I've been guilty in the past of not having those conversations in the beginning of the project. But I think we all understand how important they are. With that in mind, I want to touch on building accessibility awareness among L&D professionals. Robin, I understand you're on the Accessibility Committee at TQL. What are some ways your team is working together to incorporate inclusive design and build awareness? So we are really looking to improve our courses, of course, make them accessible for everyone. And when you're doing that for a team, you want to make sure that you're starting with that theory of inclusive design. Inclusive design is a way of thinking and approaching your process of creating with everybody in mind who might be taking your course or might be using your product. And so when we approach it in this way, we're much more effective than trying to remove the barriers after the fact. So um, if we're using the cake analogy, you basically want to bake it into your courses and make it something that's always a part of how you design, as opposed to sprinkling it on top later after the fact, because it's a key ingredient in your recipe. So you're going to bake it in, basically, is what I always remind myself, just bake it in and make sure that it's part of your process from the start and that you're always operating from that basic inclusive design theory. Some ways that you can do that as a team, depending on the size of your team and the way that your processes go, you can come up with some guidelines together, get a checklist together that you can use to implement all those accessibility practices. That would be a good place to start. And some companies and some designers are in different places than others. So you may already be doing some things very well. 
you may just need to improve a couple areas of accessibility. But um, I think it's important to just keep moving forward no matter what. I like your cake reference. I kind of thought that it was going to be an acronym and I was like, oh, <laughs> but then it was just cake. And I'm like, okay, we can go with this. <laughs> right. Yeah. We have enough acronyms in, in, you know, this field. So I think I'd rather think about cake. It was a delicious <laughs> analogy. Yeah. Thank you. We bake Thank it you. in to all our courses. Exactly. <laughs> That's great. Um, Adrian, in terms of trying to retrofit an existing course with accessibility functionality, has that been something you've ever had to do? Uh, yeah, I've had to do that, and it sucks. Back to the baking analogy, do not wait to implement accessibility until after you've built your entire course out. It creates so much unnecessary extra work. Just take the extra few minutes on each slide to structure the hierarchy of your content Add your alt tags, test with a screen reader and keyboard as you are building. I mean, for example, if you have a course with a lot of repeat pages, you only need to build one. Then you can copy and paste. If you built an accessibility and tested that first page, a lot of the work is done for you when you copy and paste for the next page. If you wait till the end, however, you will have to touch every single page to implement those appropriate standards. And if you're not careful, you may even have to redo functionality if you find out it's not compliant later. And I can tell you from recent experience, I've had to do this. And the way it was built originally was all of the links were in the text. And the keyboard storyline, when you use the tab key to access clickable elements on your screen, it won't it won't register those hyperlinks inside the text boxes. You have to either make a button or a hotspot in order to register those hyperlinks. So I literally had to recreate every single one of those links so that they were accessible. And it was a pain in the butt. So please just don't. It's a bad way to make your course compliant. Definitely, definitely do not recommend. So bake it in. Yes, bake it in. Bake it in. Make that cake. Right. Put yeah. the ingredients in first. You don't put the ingredients in last. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the famous architect Frank Lloyd Wright said it best when he said, you can use an eraser on the drafting table or a sledgehammer on the construction site. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Basically. So I want to thank you both for sharing your insights on this important topic for all of us in the learning design field. Online learning is exponentially gaining popularity. And as we in the field continue to create content, ensuring courses are accessible to every learner will be more important than ever. Robin or Adrian, any final thoughts? Yeah. So when you have a group of very diverse learners, you have to think and design for everyone. Otherwise, you're not meeting your goals. And you're essentially, without sugarcoating it, you're essentially discriminating is what that comes to. Whether you're intending to do that or not, that's kind of a hard pill for people to swallow, right? Because I'm assuming most of us did not get into this field or get this job because we wanted to hurt or make people's lives harder, but rather it was likely because we wanted to help others learn and meet their goals. Mm -hmm. So we kind of have to put our human egos aside a bit and remember that we're supposed to be learning these new ways of doing things. Doesn't mean you're not good at your job or that you're a bad person because your course didn't meet accessibility standards. But once you know better, you can change the way that you do things. And so, in terms of history, this is a very new thing we're talking about inclusive design and e learning. So, no one's been doing it perfectly from the start. 
There's always going to be some discomfort when a change or a growth is taking place. And I think that we know that and our brains really want to (laughs) resist that and run away from it. They want to avoid those growing pains usually. And that's pretty normal. But we all know that that's as, you know, in the education field, that's where the magic happens. So with that in mind, we need to listen to the disability community and learn some ways that we can design and develop content that works for all learners, not just one portion of them, especially if we want to practice diversity and inclusion in our workplaces. I'm so glad that you mentioned that. And building an awareness on the part of L&D leaders is really key. That's kind of what this podcast is about. You know, as e-learning developers and instructional designers, having an awareness and having the leaders of our team have an awareness, but also helping our clients have an awareness of what we can do for them. Yeah, they don't always know. And that's the thing. And that's part of the problem. We don't always know. I know there's a lot of people that aren't aware and, you know, how to make them more aware. You know, that's kind of the internal struggle. But yeah, clients themselves don't even always know. Mm-hmm. exactly what it means. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's an awareness thing. And I don't really want to say it's anybody's fault. It's just people don't really understand what they don't know. Yeah. It's like what Robin said earlier. Yeah, exactly. Right. And I think also about 15% of the global population is reported to have a disability. And also, I think just in the United States, the CDC has said about 24% or about one in four adults do. So we're talking about a lot of people. And when you extrapolate that to your organization, do you want that percentage of people missing out on the full effect of your training because it wasn't accessible? So it kind of puts it into perspective a little bit. Absolutely. Um, Adrian, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I completely agree. I think even if it doesn't really matter the size of the population, I think even if it's just one person you help out, I think it's a pretty important goal to strive for. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I think some people think that it's just like a checkbox that they can mark off. And I know a lot of people struggle with really understanding what it means. And even though there might be a 0.0001% chance that somebody with a disability might access their course, it's still worthwhile if, you know, from a human perspective, but also from a legal perspective Mm -hmm. to make sure that you're hopefully checking the box, but also more than checking the box, trying to make a good experience for those who might struggle a little more to interface with technology. That's great. There's a lot to cover when it comes to accessibility if you're just at the beginning. One of the things that I would recommend is registering for an inclusive design or accessibility training on a place like LinkedIn or another professional development organization like ATD. Finding some YouTubers who offer free content, using some search terms like for what you're looking for and hashtags, things like that. There is a lot of stuff out there that can help you if you're just starting that process and you're like, I don't even know where to start. There's a ton. The WCAG website is a fantastic place to learn more. But I will say that if you're at the beginning of your accessibility journey, it is a lot of information. So you might want to bookmark that and browse through different sections at your own pace. And I think there, the website is very easy. It's like w3.org. So um, if you go there, you can learn a lot more. And they help you on an individual basis If you're freelancing or if you work for an organization, they have a lot of content. So those are some good places to start. It's great to have resources at our fingertips. Those are awesome resources, Robin. We will be sharing those out on 
GCATD's website. After the podcast, you can go to GCATD.org and look at the podcast section and get some online resources. So I want to thank you both for being on the show. This was an amazing and valuable conversation for the learning and development community and for fellow instructional designers and e-learning developers. Robin, thank you. And Adrian, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was great. Thanks, Katie. I really appreciate you inviting me on the show. I think it's a really important topic. Thanks. Thank you so much, Robin and Adrian. This is a great conversation. In closing, I'd like to share one final insight from a recent article from ATD. There's great value in a company creating training content that is reflective of all employees, which includes an awareness of diversity, inclusion, and accessibility. Work environments are not typically homogenous. There is a lot of variability among team members. And by designing with the learner in mind and being aware of the tools available to create accessible e-learning, everyone can work together and achieve together. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Elevate L&D with Katie Schweeter, Robin Dishar, and Adrian Zonker. Next time, host Greg Gould and his guests will discuss virtual development, lessons learned, and myths busted. Have a topic you'd like to hear on the podcast? Email us at podcast at gcatd.org. Thanks for listening.